0: Hello, my friends, and welcome to another episode of How to Sell Advice, the podcast helping you package and sell your expertise by removing yourself from the long tail of execution so you can build a more profitable, leveraged, and strategic solo marketing practice. My name is Kevin Whelan, and today I've got Ruben Schwartz on the call. He is a former software consultant turned CRM owner. He owns a CRM business called Mimarin, and he helps. He calls it the fun anti-CRM uh, for solo consultants. He just brings a ton of knowledge and expertise around the topic of selling, and. What I really enjoy most about it is is some of the mindsets that go into it, not just the, necessarily the transactional tactics, if you will, or the nitty gritty, but really about how to approach sales in a way that benefits your clients, benefits you, and gives you a better overall way to navigate a sales conversation that feels less prescriptive, that feels a little bit less like I have to follow a step-by-step process, which can feel re- really rigid for both you and your clients. So really, he brings a ton of great ideas and great mental models to the table to help you navigate sales give this a listen and if you can get enjoyment share it with a friend and be sure to check out how to membership if you want to get up to date on the latest and what we have inside of that i'll leave you there for now and we'll see you on the other end of the podcast so you have an interesting story you sort of originated in the trenches as a consultant as a i don't know freelancer consultant and sort of worked your way up the ranks now you own a saAS business how did you go from service provider to SaaS owner?
1: Well, it should, there should be a really simple, easy story, but everything I do in life seems to be sort of convoluted and only makes sense looking back. My background is actually in software. So the real strange thing for me was starting a consulting business, especially a sales and marketing consulting business, because if you had asked me five or 10 years before that, you know, what would Ruben be least likely to do on planet Earth, that might have been it. Mm. But I, I was writing sales and marketing software, so I ended up doing some consulting in that area. And then I never set out to build a SaaS business, let alone a, a CRM business. But I was frustrated by my life being complicated when it came to sales and marketing, which I didn't like. And I felt like we did a lot of cool stuff and we built cool tools for our clients. And I was like, well, why can't I have cool tools to like make my life easier? And the thing I really wanted to know at the time that was kind of driving me nuts was just, hey, are people reading my proposals? Because that meeting to discuss it would get rescheduled. And then you're in that voicemail loop from hell where it's like, hey, just wonder if you got any questions on the proposal. Yep. And so I put together a little tool that would let me share proposals online and know if someone was reading them. And that actually went amazingly great. Uh took five minutes to have a five minute conversation instead of back and forth for a month when who knows what would happen. And I was telling some people about this experience and they were like, well, that's really cool. Can I have that? And it sort of snowballed from there and people that said, okay, great. The end of my sales cycle is now really easy. What can I do to get people in the front of my funnel? And I didn't intend to do anything about that myself. I was just going to send them in the right direction. But I realized that For this tribe of people, there really wasn't a good solution. There were great solutions for e-commerce firms, great solutions for big sales teams, but not necessarily for the independent consultant tribe. So like, okay, well, I'm going to do this and then I'll be done. And then people said, hey, this is great. I'm finally getting leads. And if I need to send them a proposal, that's all great. But man, I hate the CRM stuff I have to do in between. Can you make Mimran do the CRM stuff too? And of course I said, no, the world doesn't need another CRM. And I'd be the last person to create one if it did, blah, 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 blah. And I, of course, I'm trying dozens of CRMs myself thinking what I need is out there. And I just never could find what I needed. And it's sort of obvious to me now, but it wasn't at the time. And finally, I was like, oh, maybe I should just listen to my customers and do this. And that's kind of how I got to this crazy point.
0: Yeah, I love that you are taking a customer-centric point of view. I think if if a lot of us get too hung up on who we are, what our definition is as a software provider or a, or a proposal SaaS or a... You know, and and forget that we're here to solve business problems. And if we just keep our ear to the street and focus on the customer, uh, you'll it'll take your business in interesting ways. And interesting in your case that it landed on a CRM, which is a very competitive space. And I would love to hear a little bit more about how you how you were able to create the product in a way that was sufficiently different. Um, and then how does that map to your general philosophy on how to handle sales correspondence, whether that's over call. Or over email.
1: Sure. You're right. There's so many CRMs out there. And and that's why I was sure that there would be one that I would actually enjoy using. But what I found is the traditional CRM is for the VP of sales to keep track of the sales team. And and I should have known that from my consulting because that's one of the first things we did would walk in and try to pull some reports out of the CRM. And usually find that the salespeople were playing cat and mouse with the VP of sales because they didn't really want to be tracked, which is a whole other story. But that's why traditional CRMs are built the way they are. They want to track the sales rep. Mm. And when it's you doing sales and marketing in your spare time, neither of which you really want to do, you don't want to feel like you're working for the tool. You want to feel like the tool is helping you stay organized and stay on top of things and getting in your way as little as possible. So that's just philosophically very different. And then I also eventually got smart. It took a while, but I eventually got smart about exactly who I was trying to serve and being very specific about that. Because when I started out, I had people asking me for this in various industries, various sizes of companies, people wanting to use it for big sales teams, and it would do what it said on the tin kind of thing. But eventually the folks who are not independent consultants wanted me to go in a different direction that would have sort of broken that simplicity for the independent consultants. And and at one point I was like, you know, some of these larger companies, they're paying me more money, but it's kind of a pain in the neck. That's kind of what I wanted to avoid doing this enterprise type work. And I really like helping sort of the past version of myself because I was the sales and marketing consultant. I was helping these big companies and if I may say so, doing a good job because we got good word of mouth. We got repeat business. But I was really struggling with my own sales and marketing. And after a while, I realized that I wasn't alone in this. There's reasons why we end up in that spot when when you learn to consult and reasons why a lot of the traditional advice doesn't necessarily serve you very well. And I got such a kick out of being able to help other people going through that and sort of helping them make the, make the leap a lot faster instead of wandering around in the wilderness for years like I did. And so that's really what I, what I realized my mission was. So I wanted to, to stay very focused on that tribe and be the best option for this tribe rather than a decent option for a whole bunch of other people.
0: Yeah. And I mean, that's a good lesson for anyone out there is, you know, the beginning, it feels like you can serve everyone because functionally these things are very similar, but it's only when you start going deep on a target market do you get into the nuances of their needs and be able to make something that like irks out extra inches in the ways that matter versus you know versus trying to paint with a broad brush and uh, hope that it solves their pains and that it stands out to people even try try your your SaaS in the first place or any business. Um, in terms of your methodology, one of the things you, you talk about uh, on your website is that you help um, you help people win clients and stay organized without being salesy. And so what would you say, like that, obviously that's a very that's a very opinionated stance in a good way uh, That that implies some kind of philosophy. How do you approach sales and how do you win business without being salesy?
1: Sure. And first of all, I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with being salesy as long as you're doing it ethically. It's just not for me and not for a lot of us. And I think we can all point to an experience we had where someone was being let that archetypal pushy sales rep with us that made us feel bad. We probably have had way more experience where somebody was helping us and doing a much more effective job of selling us, but it didn't feel like it was salesy, Mm -hmm. right? Whether it's a doctor or a waitress or a consultant or whatever, we have these great experiences where somebody is in effect selling But it doesn't feel like it it feels like they're helping us buy and so that's a big thing of what i want to do i want to use really strong positioning not just for myself but help my clients do this so that you end up talking to the right people who are likely to want to buy and likely to be a good fit for you and have enough of a system in place that you don't feel any pressure to close this person if they're not the right fit yeah and then i like to think of it as for me Uh, Bob Berg, the co-author of The Go-Giver, said, Ruben, you don't hate sales. You you hate what you mistakenly think sales is. And he's right. But for me, it's just simpler to say, I don't like sales. I like helping. So let me help. And I don't Mm -hmm. like marketing, but I like teaching. And I hate networking, but I kind of like connecting with people. So just shifting the words that I use in my own head to think about what I'm doing is really a, a powerful thing. And then you combine that with having really specific positioning it's kind of like if you're the doctor who specializes in fixing shoulder injuries for people who exercise too much or something like that you're going to get referred a bunch of people who exercise too much who have shoulder problems that's probably going to be a good set of patients for you if you try to say well i could treat your knee i could treat your ankle i can treat your uh treat your stomach bug you know whatever because i went to med school then you're gonna end up with a lot of resistance and a lot of problems. And you're actually gonna end up with fewer referrals because I'm like, who's this guy? But if you are the person for the sports shoulder uh, injuries in town, you're gonna end up with a bunch of people in your waiting room. You can talk to them, have a good diagnostic conversation where you're just trying to figure out what's going on. And then you send them, You know, might be to the OR, it might be to a different specialist, it might be do these stretches and call me in six months, whatever that right thing to do is. And that sort of mindset of the doctor versus the sales rep, I think, is very powerful for folks who love serving the clients, but feel awkward with the selling. So it's like, let's not sell anybody anything. Let's make sure we're specialized. And then let's just diagnose. And the right people are going to basically pull us through the sales cycle.
0: Yeah, that's so powerful. I love the reframing of sales, the helping of you know, marketing to educating and teaching and networking to connecting. It just changes completely how you're approaching things and how you how you see your your role in those capacities. And Zig Ziglar's got a quote about being a co-buyer with your client. And uh, meaning, you know, and that's how I see all of my work as a marketing consultant advisor is I like to feel like I'm sitting on the side of my client's table and helping them make their decisions, including whether or not they should hire me. And right. acting in their fiduciary interests, or their you know being an advocate before, before they even hire you, and sort of sitting on their side and saying, okay, let's look at this challenge. What are your challenges? Let's understand them together, so I can see what you're seeing, and come to some sort of conclusion to see whether we're a fit or not, or maybe there's another way or a better way to solve that that doesn't involve me. And it does take a bit of confidence, and you do have to, you know, be okay with losing a sale in order to serve people. But I think if you take that mindset, you're going to close more deals than if you see it as a transaction, someone across the table that you can take money from, uh, regardless of whether you can help them. So I love that mindset in terms of how you kind of restructured it. And then specializing, you're saying, is a key thing as well as having a really core dialed-in set of skills that makes it so that the people you do help, you can help really well. And therefore, it kind of feels like an obvious fit, probably, when you're more specialized. You're seeing a knee doctor for for a knee problem. You're not seeing them for your stomach issues or what have you. And, and that makes a lot of sense as well. So really love, love that method. And so how would you encourage people to engage in a sales process Uh, using the CRM as a tool, but what do you foresee as being kind of the evolution from, okay, someone reaches out, how do you usher someone through that sort of general process in a way that, um, in a way that helps them hire you or not? as as quickly as need be like what's your kind of mental model for that entire sales cycle
1: well let's go back to the doctor's office and think about how do you diagnose somebody yeah right like maybe the doctor has a diploma or something on the wall but they don't spend a bunch of time talking about how awesome they are they're focused on understanding what's going on with you and they know as the expert here are the you know it could be three it could be 30 Questions, tests, diagnostics, whatever we have to run to figure out what's going on or to figure yeah. out if you're even in my domain. And if you're listening to this, you're the expert in your domain, whatever that domain might be. So, what are the questions that you need to ask, not just to like extract money from somebody, but to really understand their problem? Right. And I love what you're saying about being a co-buyer and trying to help them figure out what the right path forward is, whether or not it's with you. And if you have the confidence that, Hey, I don't need to close this person to make payroll. Cause I've been in that situation where I'm like, Oh my gosh, I finally got a referral and I better figure out how to make this work. Cause I don't know how to make payroll. Otherwise that's yeah. a terrible place to be in, right? Because yeah. you're trying to be ethical and, and all that, but you can feel that cloud hanging over you versus I have a whole bunch of patients in the waiting room. I'm going to take the right time with each of them and the right ones are going to come back to the OR with me. And the ones that that's not the right fit for that's totally fine. Cause there's another person behind them and behind them and so on. And it's almost like if you have a, have a systematic way of doing this, it's not just you sort of convincing someone to go with you. It's them convincing you that you should work with them. Yeah. And I think, that's one of the really powerful things that that can come out of this sort of diagnostic session, the co-buying, collaboration, whatever you want to call it. Sometimes you, you're talking to somebody, you're like, hey, I don't think you need this. Like you're fine. Or, you know, why don't you just do this thing that you could go do this weekend or tomorrow or that you could hire off Fiverr or whatever for a fraction of the cost of engaging me. And sometimes they're going to be like, oh my gosh, thank you. You're so right. That's great, right? And then you have... An ally, somebody who knows that you don't just try to sell them stuff, and sometimes you learn. Well, the real issue is blah. This thing that I didn't know how to how to express or wasn't ready to tell you yet because I thought you were just going to try to pull money out of me. The real issue is X Y Z, and I heard that when X Y Z is going on, you know how to handle that.
0: Right, love that, love that. You talked. You did mention one thing about being a, around the ethics of working with prospects that come with you when you have to meet payroll and yet they may or may not be a fit. I actually recently wrote on that marketing is essentially your ethical duty to be able to generate enough demand so that you can truly act in your client's best interest above your own. Because if you're at the brink of survival and needing to meet your basic needs financially, you can't really in earnest, put their needs above your own, especially when they represent a paycheck And that's where I think it gets into murky water. So I was trying to, you know, I'm a philosophy major. So I was trying to play, take a philosophical angle to it. Um, Obviously we all have to help clients the best we can. Sometimes not every single client's going to be right down your, your lane, but, and most times you can help people to some extent, but just interesting you kind of mentioning that. And, uh, and that ties very well into if you have a good marketing engine, that is education focused, that is helpful in nature, you're going to naturally bring in some people that want your help, if your help is unique and, and seems appropriate. Uh, so I just really loved that piece that you mentioned uh, there as well. Um, I want to talk a little bit about referrals. So one of the things I noticed was even though I market my businesses uh, significantly, I also get a lot of referrals and maybe that's to do with, they see some of my marketing and some of it's to do with, well, they heard I was good. And some of it's, I keep seeing your name come up in conversation. Do you have any kind of mental model for how you either generate or handle referrals, whether that means incentivizing people who refer people to you or what what makes you more likely to get referred. Do you have any thoughts on how referrals, how to basically leverage referrals and cater cater to that uh, in the best possible way?
1: Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts on that. And we may not have time for all of them, but that was actually one of the key drivers for me saying, okay, let me listen to my customers and make this thing a CRM. Because one of the things that drove me nuts with the traditional CRMs was they don't track referrals. Uh, you know, so this is the core business development activity for most consultants, and I mean, obviously, you can pay someone to customize Salesforce to to do all this or whatever, but it's not like baked into the tool. And I'm like, this is this is the key thing. Let's make sure we're tracking this from the ground up, and then how can we be intentional about it? Because I spent a long time thinking, oh, I'm I'm doing great. I get referrals. And I didn't want to be one of those sort of sleazy, how can I help you today? Do you have any referrals for me? Do you have any repeat business for me kind of consulting shops? And I you can see a lot of those. But at the same time, I kind of swung the pendulum so far in the other direction that it was ridiculous. So here's how I think about referrals. One, we got to have really strong positioning. Same thing for everything we're doing with sales and marketing, the stronger your positioning, the more work that will do for you and the less work you have to do. And I think there's a fear when you get really focused with your positioning that you're going to get less leads and you're going to get fewer referrals. And I would argue that the that that's not true. It's actually the opposite, but you're definitely going to get higher quality leads and you're much more referable. I was on a Zoom call the other day with a bunch of consultants who are comp- complaining about lead gen. And I said, hey guys. You all sound like me back in the day. And I say this with love, but none of you are referable. Because you all solve business problems in some vague way, right? Mm-hmm. I can't be like, oh, you got to talk to Kevin right now. right? And so let's, let's let our positioning do as much work for us as possible. And the way I sort of worked my way around that scarcity mindset that always creeps in is like, hey, even if I get this really hyper-focused market, I can't serve the whole thing anyway, right? I'm not Coca-Cola. But- do I want sales and marketing to be easy or hard? Because I love those conversations that don't feel like selling. They just feel like collaboration or co-buying or whatever. And you don't even realize that that somebody just basically asked you for a proposal. You're like, that was awesome. I want more of that. I don't like to convince people and use objection handling and all those fancy sales techniques. Yeah. Uh, right, like that's not for me. So let's use our positioning to make things easy. And then let's be intentional about nurturing those referral relationships, it doesn't have to be sleazy, but there are people that refer business to you that you might or might not refer business back to, but you just enjoy talking to. How often do you talk to them in an actual conversation? And this was the thing that I just fell down on. I'm like, well, they're on my email newsletter and there's nothing wrong with an email newsletter, assuming it's a decent newsletter, right? It's better than nothing, but it is not a replacement for actual conversations. I was having a conversation yesterday, actually, with somebody who refers a bunch of people to me. And I pulled up, she's referred me uh, 18 people in the past two months, some of whom are now paying customers. Um, She's an awesome connector. Um, But if I didn't keep track of that, it would just kind of fly in and out like shooting stars going through the atmosphere, and then nothing comes of it. It's not just about, do you meet somebody at a networking event and then follow up with a one-on-one? That's all great. But what about the third, fourth, 10th, 20th conversation a year later? You're going to find the people that you enjoy talking to, that enjoy talking to you. And it's not sleazy to just be organized about, hey, Kevin, we haven't spoken in months. What's new in your world?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love I love that. Um, It's funny because I wouldn't have really realized that Referrals had such a big impact on my business if I didn't analyze in retrospect by looking back and saying, where do these people come from and what led to that? And and then in, you know, in your case, it would be what who specifically referred me. And sometimes I've forgotten, you know, which is terrible, you know, in some cases. But uh, that's one of the things as marketers, as advisors, we, we track a lot of data and it helps to be able to then look back because our assumptions are sometimes generally right but they can often astonish you just at yeah. how dramatic. And like, there's always an 80, 20 of some in some sort, you know, 80% of your leads come from 20% of, of all the different channels that could possibly come. And maybe that's referrals for, for you or for most people. Uh, so really fascinating and using a, a tool like your CRM or other CRMs to to track that stuff, just super valuable. And I love how you talked about leaning on your positioning because when people do refer you, they're making a bit of a reputation. there's a bit of a reputational risk. Right. Mm -hmm. If, if I, if I know you can do everything, then I kind of don't know what you're good at and what you're not good at. So it makes it very hard for me to refer you in good conscience to a client with confidence saying, this is definitely the person you want to hire. It has to be couched with. Uh, They seem to be very good at a lot of things. I think they can probably help you potentially. And that's if I'm willing to make the risk in general, you know, because you never, you never really know how good someone is until you've worked with them. Uh, So Mm -hmm. I think even your positioning saying, I specialize, I help X do Y makes you much more, first of all, people think of you more, uh, mm-hmm. you know, as Jonathan Stark says, the Rolodex moment. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then more likely to refer you with confidence saying this, this person does this all day long. I think they're going to be a really good fit for you. So I love how you're talking about leaning on your positioning there and letting that engine drive it.
1: When it's even exponentially more powerful than that, because even, even assuming you do get that referral when your positioning is weak, well, they might've referred three other people yeah. and now you're like, trying to convince somebody who's not an ideal fit that they should work with you. Meanwhile, that you've got some competitors, right? You may not have even wanted that referral and maybe just be sucking time and energy out of you versus the people, you know, who have the, the pitching injuries that I know I can fix and I'm the best doctor in town to deal with it. Send me those all day long.
0: Yeah. Yeah. What about the idea of gifting? Do you, do you have any thoughts or beliefs on whether you you know, let's say you referred me 18 customers or clients, you know, I would want to reciprocate in some way, whether that is, you know, offering some of my time. I've personally, I've sent small gifts to people who have just been completely generous things that are really super focused on who they are and what would benefit them or even like chocolates or things of that mm-hmm. nature a card. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on, do you have any thoughts on the idea of gifting or reciprocation for referrals as a general practice?
1: Great question. And I think there's a, a range of answers that depend on your relationship. And ironically enough, I just published a, a episode on my podcast with Steve Visogani, whose whole business is in helping you like automate gifting in this way, mm-hmm. um, but still keeping it very personalized and so on. I think it's nice to show appreciation. So I actually have I'm I'm a little overdue here. To, I'm supposed to have time this morning to write some thank you notes, wow. um, right? So you're going to get a thank you note for having me on your podcast because I just appreciate that. And I'm wow. going to thank a customer and I'm going to thank the person who referred me to that customer. And it's just like, it, it's just one, I think it's nice to take a moment for yourself and just feel some gratitude and know that, hey, for all the chaos and stuff out there that can throw things off track, there's actually a bunch of like good forces in the universe that are helping you and returning hopefully some good karma that you're putting out there. And then I love the notion, I don't do a good job with this really, but like of giving someone just a, you know, some chocolate or something, something nice. That's all about them. I think there's a difference between like, Hey, I'm going to pay you an X percent referral fee. And here's, here's a chocolate thing and a nice card or a wine glass and, and a thank you note or something like that. I think for most of us, you know i don't mind for example if someone's like hey ruben do you have an affiliate link that you can create for me i'm like sure but most people don't want to jeopardize their relationships for a little bit of money yeah right i mean maybe once they they know you and all that like you can establish some kind of partnership but i i i think like what would you do if you wandered into this person like if it was like college and and they were down the hall from you i try to think of of that um versus oh my gosh everything is virtual you know so easy to just shoot an email to somebody so taking t- the time just to do something that recognizes and and shows some appreciation i'm all i'm all for it and from what i hear from people they appreciate it that somebody took the time to do that whether they can read what i write i don't know my handwriting is terrible but i know i love getting a card from somebody in the mail right it's just a little personal touch in, in this fully quasi-automated world where everyone wants to do things more efficiently. Sometimes you got to slow down and just be human to human.
0: Yeah. And that actually prompts a thought about, there's a book called, um, uh, I think it's called Alchemy by Rory Sutherland. And maybe might be mm-hmm. called some, something along those lines. He's a marketer. He runs Ogilvy in the UK. Uh, but he talks about sometimes the the very difficulty of the thing is a message so the mm-hmm. fact that if you take the time to write a card or whatever and put it in an envelope and get the address and send it uh the very difficulty involved in that like you could automate that with a with an email or uh, even maybe an automated message uh that would that would get the same message across but it you know as as Marshall McLuhan says the medium is the message and right the difficulty of that is sometimes telling you that there's a value there that It's not just like a quick send off. It's I took the time to do this and send it to you. And I think that's a really powerful message within a message when you do that. So I wish I wish I was better at that. I always it comes to the holidays and I'm always scrambling to like figure out whether I can send somebody some cards, you know, the holidays. And I want to like revert. I want to flip that on its head and think about how do I get more intentional with all kinds of, you know, um, thank yous, gifts holiday greetings, whatever. And, uh, and be more intentional with the offline stuff. I think it'd be super powerful and I'm terrible at it. Really full disclosure.
1: Well, and I'm not great at it really. Uh, and I don't do the holiday stuff and I sort of rationalize it by thinking it's kind of, I feel cheesy and I also feel like there's a deluge of, you know, happy holidays from such and such corp. Um, but I like sending a a note to somebody when there's a, like a good reason to, to thank them. And, I literally just have a a little slot on my calendar blocked off every week, and I actually invited somebody else to this meeting because she was saying, "Hey, she loves sending handwritten cards, but she's not good about actually doing it." I was like, "Well, okay, I'm going to invite you to my little slot. We won't talk or anything. It was just time to to write your notes." And of course, this morning I, I was doing some tech support for my mother in law, and that you know that killed my my slot. But I have my cards right out here on my desk, so You're gonna get it done. It's gonna happen. <laughs>
0: You know, there is a lot of good karma to be had for helping your mother-in-law with tech support. I'm the de facto tech support (laughs) for my extended family, not just my media family. Um, The interesting thing you're kind of talking about is this idea of sort of systemizing some of your sales, you know, biz dev, maybe even marketing. Um, Do you have a view on how much of your sales and biz dev work should be systemized versus kind of made up based on how you're feeling in the moment? Like, what is the line between ultra Dialed and systemized and somewhat fluid, based on your the moment.
1: Well, I think it varies, and one of the challenges of being a solopreneur is your life is gonna get thrown some curveballs. And you know, having tech support session with your mother-in-law is a relatively minor curveball. But you know, if my whole day and my whole mental uh, sense of peace was dependent on me following my schedule exactly, like I would never have a moment's peace. So I think we have to give ourselves a little bit of grace, but I'm a big fan of let's use the calendar to do the things that that we say we're going to do. Like I have a Friday afternoon slot blocked off that I create with a button in my CRM that says catch up on overdue calls. Yeah, And is it perfect? No. And in theory, there shouldn't be that slot, right? There should be no overdue calls. I should be on top of everything, but of course I'm not. And so this just gives me a little bit of slack to go in and do that. Now there's other things for like, let's talk to partners. Let's talk to prospects. Let's talk to clients. All of those things I think are so important. They should be blocked off on your calendar every week. And you're going to hopefully go on vacation and skip some of those. Life is going to happen and you're not going to make it every week. But my argument as a long time like perfectionist who didn't want to start anything unless I had the full like optimal diagram drawn Uh out is doing this, you know, let's just say 80%, 90%, even 50% and actually doing it is so much more effective than diagramming a bunch of crap and then not actually doing it and getting lost in sort of the reactive mode of things coming at you all the time. I think for most of us, Business development is a really important part of what we're supposed to be doing, but it's often relegated to the periphery. It's like something we try to slot in in a few spare moments, usually because we don't like it and we're trying to procrastinate around it versus let's set it up in a way that's actually fun. So we actually want to do it and we actually put it on our calendar. And it's the thing we're going to do by default, unless some curveball comes, not the thing that only happens if there's some miracle and, you know, I have good energy and I have a few minutes and blah, 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 blah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's the, that's how I feel. And I think you're, you're bang on by saying, you know, life is messy. Right. And like, I have two young children and therefore even my perfectly planned schedule is constantly being adjusted. And And so uh, you can't get down on yourself. if You don't get all of your system down, but it's nice to have parts of it that you, you know, for example, I have mandatories, like I need to create, you know, ideally multiple pieces of content that I publish through my newsletter per week. And as long as I've done that, I used to be daily and I've kind of pulled back on that a little bit. Um, But I think it's important that you say, as long as I do that, then everything else sort of falls into place. And, And on a sales side, it might be, you know, as long as I schedule this thing and I send a couple cards, at least I'm, I know I'm in that mode. I'll always prioritize the most important top of mind people Mm. or whomever. And, and I think I like that idea of have a, have a plan, but don't, don't feel like it don't like live by your plan. It kind of removes the fluidity of life a little bit that can make you a little more agile.
1: Yeah. And I think that notion of, let's do what we can and kind of keep have enough of a plan that there's some momentum happening and some forward progress. Yeah. Cause I think what happens if we don't have that plan, we don't have that time blocked off on our calendar is everything is reactive and then scrambling. And then maybe we like, Oh, I'm going to create 18 pieces of content today. Cause I have a few minutes, but then you don't follow up with that appropriately and so on. So I think especially when it's just you and you know, having kids, having a dog, having whatever else is happening in life, um, it's hard to keep all these balls in the air. And so a lot of it is let's figure out how to be really intentional about the, the critical ones. And again, some of this goes back to the positioning, right? If I know exactly who my my ideal audience is, I can get rid of 50, 80, 90% of the crap that I was so worried about because it doesn't actually matter. It's not. It doesn't apply to my ideal audience. Let me instead create one thing that's really gonna resonate with them. Right? Let me post that in the one place that I know they hang out as opposed to worrying about the 18 other places that people in adjacent markets can hang out, et cetera.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's, uh, that was actually my next question. If you could only focus on one thing for your business development, let's say you had one, aside from sort of having a CRM or something, but one thing that one action you took or one category of things for biz, biz dev, and we can call that sales and or marketing, what would that be what would be your one if all you could do is one thing
1: well of course this is going to depend for different markets but i think for me and for a lot of the folks listening here the one thing is to systematically talk to people and as an introvert i spent years avoiding that trying to automate my way out of that but you can't solve all these problems in your own head yeah. whether it's creating a great blog post or lead magnet or figuring out who you should talk to next or the you know the LinkedIn group that's going to have a whole bunch of prospects for you whatever it is, this happens in conversation with other people and so one of the biggest things that I have been able to shift with myself is go from, let's avoid talking to people at all costs, or if necessary, force myself to talk to people. Oh gosh, this sucks, but I'm going to slog through it To Let's set up a way that this is actually fun and interesting and energizing. And I can't tell you how different it is as an introvert to go from, I'm avoiding talking to people. I'm kind of frustrated with my sales and marketing. And when I force myself to talk to people, I get that tension in my neck because it sucks so bad To I spend most of my day talking to people and it's super fun. Like, I'm not going to say a hundred percent of the time, but like 90% of the time, it's super fun because I've got things not perfectly dialed in, but dialed in enough that, you know, you and I are having a fun conversation. I like talking to you.
0: Yeah. It's right? directionally accurate. Like as long as you're sort of, you're plotting your way, albeit maybe not in a straight line, but you have a system that gets you in that direction. Generally, that's all you need, you know?
1: Yeah. I was talking to somebody yesterday who's having trouble with business development and she said she did market research. And I was like, okay, well, how many people did you talk to? And She said two or three. I'm like, okay, you, I guarantee you that you know hundreds of people, most of whom are not in your target market, but almost all of whom know people in your target market. And you haven't spoken to any of them about this. Yeah. That's why you're struggling.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. It's if you think of yourself, if you think of people as your path to opportunity, one of the things I teach is about a golden goose method, which is things like getting on someone's podcast or getting in teaching what you know, teaching that idea and serving to an audience that already exists by aligning yourself with the person who aggregated it. Uh, but basically, using that as leverage so you can get, get basically open up doors with more of your target market. Um, But just generally this idea of if you think of people as the conduit to more clients, then you start to think, well, how would people, who would I need to connect with and how would I need to add value and and in order to develop relationships that would potentially lead to business long-term? Because in absence of relationships, I don't think I'd have a business. Just like going back to that point about a large majority majority of my leads came through referrals probably because those people were exposed to my marketing and maybe some of them had worked with me in the past. Um, So it's just an interesting model that if you focus on people, in your biz dev, in your marketing, but specifically, and then connecting and talking to people, whether they're your peers or mm-hmm. or non-competitive service providers who do a similar thing. Like if you work with graphic designers and you are a strategist, talking to those graphic designers, seeing what's working, mm-hmm. that can lead to a whole bunch of things. Because a lot of times people just don't know. They don't know you exist. They don't know what you do. And then if you just spoke with them, they'd have that moment. Because, oh, I know someone you should speak to. And then I think naturally most self-employed people are connectors uh, in general. Yeah. We have to be. So I love that kind of framing there. Is there one book that has changed the trajectory of your business or has impacted you and led you to where you are? Is there one main book, and you can you can say a couple if you want, but you know, it's a mind? great
1: question, and I I love reading books, um, and and so I should probably have a better answer for this, but. One thing that really helped me at the beginning when I was starting to consult was Million Dollar Consulting by Alan Weiss, who was good enough to come on Sales for Nerds. And we had a great chat over wine. And I was like, holy crap, I can't believe I'm having wine with Alan Weiss. and (laughs) You know, guy who, for all the struggles I had, they would have been exponentially worse without that book.
0: Yeah. For me, it was uh, value-based fees. And that's what, that was the tipping point. I was, as I was branching into consulting and out of running an agency, I'm like, I was reading that book. Uh, which made to me more practical sense for that pivot and transition. And then I understood, oh, I'm solving for a business problem based on the value of that business problem with the mechanics that I decide are best. Anyway, I'm totally with you. Million Dollar Consulting by Alan Weiss is a, is a classic. Last question for you. Um, you do have the podcast Sales for Nerds and, uh, and, and it's a great, great show. Uh, you have a little thing that you like to do at the beginning of every show. And that is, and you alluded to it with your conversation with Alan Weiss is you ask what's in your glass. Where did that yes. come from? And and yeah, how did that come about? Because it, it is something that I, when we spoke for, originally, I'd remembered seeing a video of you talking to Alan Weiss on YouTube, probably down at a- Alan Weiss rabbit hole. And I remembered that as a trigger, a hook, if you will, which made you familiar to me very quickly. How did that little hook come to be?
1: Well, I'd love to say it was some grand strategic plan, but it wasn't. I used to go pre-COVID, I would go on an annual sort of summit retreat every year with some other small business owners and we would ski during the day. And then we would talk business at night. And in between there was usually some drinking involved and somebody said something, I don't know if it was me or one of the other people, or we were just sort of in conversation about how, you know, if we were millennials, we would just film this and put it on YouTube and figure out how to monetize it make a whole bunch of money. Cause you know, we're, we're sort of a little happy and, and tipsy and talking about business and this, that, and the other thing. And I, at the same time, I was like, I kind of should write a book because I keep getting asked the same questions all over again and it would be a good exercise for me and hopefully valuable to other people if I could consolidate all this stuff that I've learned into a book. And then I thought, oh, that's a lot of work. What if I had a podcast and I invite some other people to come talk and share their expertise? And then what if I did it around, I'm going to show up with a bottle of wine and we'll drink the wine and do the podcast. And I thought, that's kind of crazy. I don't know if I can do that. And I was like, well, it's my business. It's my podcast. Why can't I do that? Right. And so, of course, as an over-perfectionist, I wait six months and sit on this idea until finally it was literally six months later. I'm like, I'm so embarrassed. Like I'm doing it again. I'm overthinking yeah. it. Like yeah. I'm going to send an email out tonight. And so uh, I don't know if you know Jason Cohen, he's mm-hmm. the founder of WP Engine where I host yeah. my website and uh, he's done Same. a lot of entrepreneurial things and he has a great blog at a smart com, and just you know, generally cool guy to talk to lots of good thoughts. So I sent him an email like, oh, you know, Always been big fan of a smart bear. Um, a customer of WP Engine have this idea where you know I bring a bottle of wine and we talk about this. You know, would you mind this? The other thing, blah blah blah. And he writes back like three minutes later. You had me at wine. Here's a link to my calendar. And I was like, oh, you know that's interesting. Like there's no way I could get an hour of Jason Cohen's time if I hadn't said <laughs> here's some wine show up at his office. We record two episodes. The sound quality is terrible and all that because I didn't know what I was doing. But the only reason we stopped talking is because we ran out of wine. Uh, It was just such a great conversation. And it's it's just such a nice icebreaker. And I kind of feel part of what was happening at the time. Also, I felt like I was in a little bit of a rut. I was like, why can't business be fun? Let's have things be fun. And I think that resonates with a lot of people, and not everyone drinks, which is fine. But most people kind of enjoy the concept, and what I hear from listeners is, is they seem to enjoy the concept too.
0: Wow, I love that story. is Is that audio recording of, with you and Jason still online anywhere?
1: Yeah, I split it into two episodes: episodes one and two of Sales for Nerds are Jason and I talking business, and uh, you know, badly in need of a sound editor, probably, and better microphones and all that, but. I mean, he's yeah. got some great wisdom that you should totally check out.
0: I will definitely do that. Uh, yeah, Jason runs WP Engine, as you alluded to, is now billion dollar multi. I don't know how big it is, uh, exceeding a billion dollars uh, in or valuation anyway, and doing extraordinarily well. And I'm a customer of theirs as well. So, and he's a great strategic thinker. I will definitely go back and look at that. One thing I, I'm going to close on with you is that you mentioned on kind of you were over, you know, over this pattern of overthinking and being perfectionist, and I think a lot of us get held back by that. And there was a quote I heard today by Daniel Priestley. He wrote a book called uh, Key Person of Influence. And so he says, prolific beats perfect. And I just like this idea of optimizing for just getting a thing out. And it's going to be And one of the things that I have firm belief is things start small and crappy, specifically crappy, uh, not scrappy, uh, and then get better over time. And you have mm-hmm. to be willing to just sort of put out and turn out the turn out your thinking or your effort and then eventually polish it and refine it over time. And, uh, I just kind of like that idea of like permission to have bad audio with a really important guest that first time and build it from there. And you've done so successfully since then.
1: Yeah, I think it's such a great point to close on because I think so many of us think that you cannot make a mistake in anything. And obviously, you know, if you're doing heart surgery, don't make a mistake. Um, but for all the sales and marketing stuff we're doing, you're going to make mistakes. It's just inevitable. And sort of to to just circle back to that example you talked about, there's something that I remember in my head where an art professor gave students a chance to be graded on one project or on a whole quantity of projects. It was a pottery class. And so mm-hmm. a lot of people said, Oh, great. I only have to do one thing. That's I'm going to save myself so much work. I'm just going to make one awesome thing. Well, who ended up with much better pottery at the end of the semester? It was the people who were cranking out pots every day yeah, And then the people who tried to make the perfect pot at the end, they were kind of crappy because the first effort's always kind of crappy.
0: Yes, amen. And I think is, this is especially difficult for, I assume you, because you're a software developer and you're therefore, in my mind, quite intelligent and probably were successful in school. Like, don't let me, you know, over-assume No, please keep talking. This is yeah, great. And, I like you know, this. Super successful <laughs> in all areas of life. No, but it's particularly difficult for people who are natural achievers and who are good and say, for example, academics to make that bridge and put out a blog post that might not be perfect and might be overly rigid or boring or what have you. You know, for, for folks like me, I was, as long as I got 70 and above in school, my parents didn't get mad at me. So once I realized that I was, you know, 70s, 80s student and I was just coasting. Uh, but what that taught me though was being okay with putting something out that's less than perfect and then going back and making things better and then just improving over time and really dialing in. And uh, sounds like you've kind of been forcing yourself to do that, having a system, but being okay with it, being imperfect, getting it directionally accurate and starting with crappy audio. And then here you are today. How many podcast episodes later?
1: I think uh, 85 or so. And, and I've got one in the queue for you that hasn't published yet.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So that's the way, right? It's being okay with less than perfect and then making it better over time. Uh, so this has been a really great Conversation, Ruben, I really appreciate you sharing your wisdom. And I can tell there's just so much more expertise under the cover uh, that we haven't uncovered in our conversation. Uh, tell us where we can learn more about the CRM and, and follow you in particular, uh, if someone wanted to explore your ecosystem a little further.
1: Sure, thanks. Uh, you can find more about Mimarin at mimarin.com. That's M-I-M-I-R-A-N.com. And in addition to the CRM, there's a bunch of lead magnets. There's a proposal template. There's pro- the proposal template that I use Uh, there's ideas for lead magnets for your site and some other freebies that might be helpful for you. Uh, You can also catch the podcast at salesfornerds.io or just search for Sales for Nerds podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can find me on LinkedIn. I don't know if I'm the only Ruben Swartz, but if there's not really that many of us, I don't think. So it should be pretty easy to find me.
0: Perfect. Ruben, this has been a terrific conversation. Thank you so much for your time. And I look forward to seeing you on the internet.
1: Thanks so much, Kevin. Thanks for having me.
0: So that's it, my friends. I hope you enjoyed that podcast. Ruben is such a wealth of knowledge and definitely go check out his CRM or the fun anti-CRM at mimiran.com, M-I-M-I-R-A-N.com. And yeah, there'll be notes ad- additional to this in the in the show notes. If you have any other follow-up questions, let me know. You can always reach me on Twitter slash X at, at Kevin C. Whelan or reply to any of my emails if you're on my mailing list and you can get direct contact to me if you have any questions or follow-up to this. As always, please share with a friend if you got some value out of this and I really appreciate it. Head over to howtoselladvice.com slash membership to either get on the mailing list or join the membership. And I will hopefully see you inside. That's all for now, my friends. Take care.